morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Ever Ivy from the Job Resource Center. Uh, and today we will have a panel discussion with three instructors from the Intensive English Language Program here at Moraine Valley Community College entitled, Before I Was Your Teacher, My Life Overseas. And this panel discussion is in celebration of International Education Week. So we will hear a brief presentation uh, from all of our instructors and then near the end we will open it up to take questions from you. So please if you have any questions please feel free to note them down uh, and then toward the end we will take your questions. So we will start off with our first presenter Mr. James Holen. He is an intensive English language faculty member here at Moraine. James was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. Mr. Holen has been teaching intensive English language program classes at Moraine Valley since August 2005. But before he was your teacher, he taught in a community college in Saipan from 1992 to 2005. Saipan is in the Western Pacific. He taught classes similar to intensive English language classes and also taught both levels of composition classes for credit. His students were mostly from Saipan and other islands in Micronesia, but there are also some students that were from American, Chinese, Philippine, Filipino, Japanese, Korean, and Thai students. Before Mr. Holland, Mr. Holland moved to Saipan, he taught at a community college in Palau, which is also in the Western Pacific from 1983 to 1992. More than half of the students were from Palau, but the rest were from other islands in Micronesia, including Chuk, Kazre, the Marshall Islands, Ponape, and Yep. Everyone, please welcome Mr. James Holen. That's Palawan. That's Palawan for good morning. Um, this one, uh, how do I get it up? Uh -oh. I don't have a laptop. Okay. Okay, there it is. So, like um, the brief introduction said, before I was your teacher, I taught at two colleges overseas in uh, Micronesia. So basically, I came from paradise to teach here <laughs> in Chicago. Um, this is a map of Saipan, and the college is in, um, well, actually, it's in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the least variation in temperature all year round. It's always between like 75 and 85 degrees without the heat index. So it's pretty nice. But one of the problems is typhoons, super typhoons. The year I moved there, there were four two super typhoons. Came in, they closed the airport the next day. Um, there was a volcanic eruption one day and the sky turned completely black. And in between all of those things, there were the occasional earthquake. And this is a picture of the front of the building where I had most of my classes. See the coconut palm trees? It probably, well, it doesn't look like that now because it's nighttime, but tomorrow morning it will. And they even wrote up uh, an article in the local newspaper for us moving there. But this is me in one of the classes, and these are my coworkers. Frank, Vince, there's me. Oh, a lot less me than now, huh? <laughs> See what you've done to me? You make me worry. I, when I worry, I eat, and I get, I get bigger, okay? Um, and then my other friend, Bruce. This is after a super typhoon. This is the college. It's the same building after a super typhoon. Right now, they're going to school in tents, so we have better facilities here, and that was one of the reasons I left. Uh, this is Palau. Palau is really beautiful. It's one of the seven uh, natural underwater, uh, well, actually, wonders of nature. It's really beautiful, really pristine and clear. Um, 
the water is so clear that if you're out at about the surface and you look down 100 feet, it looks like the sharks are, are minnows. They look very, very small, but they're 10 to 12 feet long. And that's the building where I taught there. Um, the buildings were really old out there. They were built by the US Navy after World War II. And this is a map of Micronesia. Uh, and it has the different, it used to be Micronesia and they all were one unit, but then they split up into three. Palau is one unit and the other is the central part and then there's um, the Marshall Islands over in the east. The gentleman would like the Marshall Islands because the Marshall Islands has one atoll there and it's called Bikini, okay? The swimsuit was named after the atoll because it was the same year they were exploding atomic bombs. If you've ever seen the mushroom cloud over the ocean, that's Bikini Atoll. Um, that's about all I have to say. I, I don't know. I, that's a horrible way to end. I'm sorry. <laughs> if, you're <laughs> if you're a speech student, please great. don't follow that. Um, but I think we're taking questions later or now. After all of us speak, I think. Okay. So without further ado, here's Kip Kozad. Okay, thank you. Thank you for letting us know about your experiences uh, working in. That's fine. We can give them a round of applause. <laughs> thank you, James. Thank you. We will actually hear from Mr. Dustin French next. So Dustin has a degree in linguistics with specializations in writing, grammar, and second language acquisition. He has taught intensive English language and freshman composition for eight years. Apart from teaching, he stays busy raising his two-year-old son and two-month-old daughter. Most summers, he travels to Thailand to visit his wife's family. Everyone, please welcome Mr. Dustin French. Um, so my name is Dustin. Um, my story begins actually uh, from birth. Um, yeah. So I'm originally from the Philippines. My family moved um, when I was about 12, 10, 10, 11 years old. And um, after high school, I decided to take a gap year from, from school. Okay, so, so a gap year is where you don't go to college right after high school. And so I took that year off with my friend that I, that I got to know very well in high school. Uh, we decided to go to Mexico, um, in Cuernavaca, Mexico. And there we stayed with his cousin uh, who has been there for many years. And so we got to stay with him for a year uh, rent-free. Okay, um, my job there was actually interesting. Um, again, my Spanish there was a little bit weak, um, even though I was born speaking Spanish, but um, I haven't used it in a really you know, long time uh, when you go into high school, an all English speaking school. And so I became what we call a tamalero. And uh, I was a tamales seller. I, so I worked for this, with this restaurant, uh, my friend's cousin's restaurant, and, uh, and I was one of those people where on the streets, they, uh, we would sell tamales. So, so if you ever go to downtown Chicago or a little village in Chicago, uh, you'll see people selling you know, tamales. So green tamales, red tamales, any kind of tamales that tastes really good. Um, so what I did was every single day, I helped the family with the restaurant. Uh, it was from 5 a.m. to I think s 7 a.m. We were trying to prepare for the tamales, trying to get the cart ready. Um, I thought it was gonna be a very easy year, uh, relaxing year, but my friend said, you need a job so you can be a tamalero and you can help my parents or, or the family. Like, oh, okay. I thought it would be really easy, but it wasn't easy. Every single day, 5 a.m. to 7, prepare the tamales, and then I have to go out there in the world to sell tamales in the center 
um, and the lines would just line up. Like I, people love tamales in Mexico, and so, so my, the family's like, well, we need to bring more tamales because you know people like to like to eat them, and um, so it was a very long days, uh, very very long days that I had um, as one part of the semester. Um, then my friend and I decided to move from Cuernavaca to Mexico City. And um, there I became a, uh, I sold paletas. Paletas are like popsicles. Okay, so I worked, I worked for a random restaurant that, was, that made paletas. And um, if you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're from Mexico, Cuernavaca and Mexico, they're like one hour apart. And the whole environment is very different. Okay, in Cuernavaca, people are so relaxing. They're so nice. Uh, it, the weather's really nice. But in Mexico City, which is the capital of Mexico, um, the whole environment is different. Everyone is go, 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 go. And, um, and so I was selling paletas on one of the busiest streets in Mexico. And so people would just be walking on the sidewalks, and uh, and I had to like move my 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 paleta cart, okay, so that it wouldn't get in the way. And um, it was a great experience. My Spanish there in Mexico City was a little bit rough because I didn't quite understand what they were asking, and um, my Spanish is a little bit different from like because in the Philippines we speak a little bit of Spanish. But Spanish in Mexico was a way different. Uh, they spoke really fast, and I didn't know any of these slangs. So these young people in their little groups, you know, coming up to the my paleta cart, and they're like, la 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 la. So which one do you want? Okay, <laughs> and um, so so that job was pretty easy because all I had to do was just put put the paletas into the cart, and that was it. I didn't have to make anything, so just put it in the cart. Um, so the salary there was a little bit not better, okay? Um, so if you know anything about salaries there, the, the tamale job and the paleta job that I had um, did not make a whole lot of money, uh, which is understandable because it was a gap year, so I tried to do everything I can to, to make money. Um, my parents, however, were not really happy that I decided to take a gap year in Mexico. Um, they were believing in me in terms of, you know, my son's going to be a great doctor. Uh, he's going to make lots of money. And when they discovered that I was a tamalero, uh, they were like, okay, this is what you are going to do with your life. And so eventually, after my parents and I, we had a long discussion about this gap year, I decided to go into teaching. And and it was in Mexico that actually encouraged me to go into ESL teaching because there was a school there. It was like a community college, but a language school attached to it. Um, I got to observe, uh, take, some, take some classes there, and I got to observe an ESL class. And uh, they used me there because I spoke you know, English. And, um, and when I observed, I thought, wow, this is actually really cool. I mean, I got to work with students uh, learning English. Uh, I mean, my English wasn't that great, but uh, it was much better than most people in Mexico. And, and so I was like, this, this might be a good experience for me to do. So when I returned uh, from Mexico uh, a year later, um, I decided to go into teaching or go or study, uh, study uh, with a teaching degree. Um, but that was probably one of the best years of my life because it was sort of freeing. Um, I wasn't tied down to anything. I got to do whatever I want. And uh, it was also a good experience because, you know, I didn't know the system in Mexico. Um, I couldn't figure out the transportation. Um, I didn't know about taxes. I didn't know how to talk to the doctors very well. So it was a very interesting experience for me uh, moving or relocating into a place that was very strange and I didn't know anybody except for my friend and his family. And so it was really hard to get accustomed to uh, the life in Mexico, going from Cuernavaca to, um, to the bigger city. 
And so uh, the adjustment there, the cultural shock was a little bit different. Even though I'm not from the United States and that I moved from the Philippines to the United States, the experience from Mexico and the United States was, was totally different, like shocking, because there's a whole new different culture. And uh, I got to really meet uh, you know, different people, new people, and my experience there was really memorable. And um, I, I did get in trouble with the police in Mexico, okay, but that's a different story. Um, um, but uh, if you ever, if, if you think about, you know, gap years, um, I think gap years are a really great, great time for you to really think about who you are, and and I don't know, all of you are like in different from different countries, but uh, studying abroad, I think, uh, not actually studying, but living abroad is is a really good experience, and and for me, it was definitely a good experience uh, to try something new that you know I, I I don't know what the restaurant business is like, and and working as a, a tamale seller and a paleta seller, um, it was a very good experience, good outlook on um, on just life in general. Uh, you get to see a lot of people, uh, just, you know, different people who were happy, sad, angry, and, you know, I couldn't count the money fast enough because, you know, a peso, so I, I couldn't figure out the pesos money exchange. Uh, so I was like, so how much is this? Uh, that's 20 pesos. And you gave me how much? 100 pesos? <laughs> so, so my math back then wasn't good uh, when it came to pesos, but um, that is really what I did. I mean, I did many things before teaching, but that's one of the things that I really want to tell you is is you know it's not all about studying, but but also experiencing life, um, and then later on you can study. <laughs> but yeah, thank you. Thanks, Dustin. Thank you very much for uh, sharing some of your experiences with us. Okay, the last presenter we'll hear from before we take your questions uh, is Mr. Kip Kozad. So Kip Kozad served as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Yemen Arab Republic from 1988 to 1990. In Yemen, Kip taught English as a second language in a remote village in the Haraz Mountains. His students were all farmers' sons who often walked upwards of five miles to attend the regional public school. Kip later taught high school history in Kansas City, Missouri, and currently serves as the coordinator of tutoring and literacy and is an adjunct instructor of history here at Moraine Valley Community College. Kip has a bachelor's degree in secondary education and a Master's of Art degree in History from the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Everyone, please welcome Mr. Kip Kozak. Sabacher. Oh, louder than that. Sabacher. Kef Halakum. Okay, so I said good morning, everyone, and how's everybody doing? Um, so a lot of you are probably wondering, how did I end up in Yemen? Right? I get that question a lot. And uh, really, it's kind of an unusual story because I grew up on the outskirts of Kansas City in kind of a suburban setting. And um, I really had no idea that, or aspirations really, of going overseas and, and working. And it was kind of uh, serendipitous that it happened. I, after I got out of college, um, I had one class that I needed to take in the summer. And nobody would hire me as a teacher because I still needed to complete that one class. After I finished that class, I ended up working in a factory. How many people are familiar with Hallmark cards? Anybody, anybody heard of Hallmark cards? They make greeting cards? Well, what I did after college is I packed boxes for 10 hours a day. And I had a college education. And it was just killing me on the inside because I really wanted to be a teacher. I, I wanted to be a teacher since I was very young. So after doing this job with much frustration for a while, I kind of looked around, or what are some opportunities besides working at the local public school or whatever? So two things came up. One was the American Peace Corps, which they would take people throughout the year. And the other one was working on an Indian reservation. And they were kind of the same way. They would take people throughout the year. And so I applied to both. And I said, whichever came first, I was going to take. I get a call from the Peace Corps. And the Peace Corps serves. Um, 
pretty much um, all the developing world, they, uh, they need all kinds of people to help them. It, I could have gone anywhere. I could have gone to Palau in Micronesia. I could have gone to Thailand. Um, these are some of the uh, countries, by the way, that I put, like first and second. But I get this call that says um, that we are sending a group to Yemen. How would you like to go to Yemen? Well, I knew two things about Yemen, being a kind of a history person. I knew that it was a Muslim country, and I knew where it was. That's all that I knew. So I told the lady, this was back before the internet and all that, I said, how about I go, give me a day, let me go do some research on Yemen, and I'll let you know. So I went to the local university, got out a couple National Geographics, of course, and started looking through the pictures, and the first thing that struck me about Yemen was the history. I mean, talking about a country that has unbelievable history that goes all the way back to biblical times, right? You, and if you're probably familiar with the Queen of Sheba. Well, she was in uh, Bilqis in Arabic, right? She was in Yemen. And so after seeing all those pictures, of course, they're all glossy and beautiful. You kind of have a different image, right, perhaps. Um, I got back on the phone and said, sure. So here I was, this kind of white, goofy kid from suburban America, never been overseas in my life, getting on a plane, heading to Yemen. And so I went to Yemen. I, we spent three months in the capital where we learned uh, language for three months, culture, um, all the things that we needed. And then after that, they took us and plucked us in the middle of nowhere in Yemen. We were the first Americans in the Peace Corps that they took, uh, moved away from the capital and the major cities and put in the rural areas. So I was living in rural Yemen, first person. So, you know, just a quick story. The first night that I get there, it's pouring rain. And, of course, the people there knew that this American was going to come and teach in their school. So this was kind of a, a big deal because they didn't have, you know, they didn't have they didn't, they've never, most of them have never seen a Westerner before. And it was pouring rain when I got there. So I, got, I was staying with an Egyptian guy. The next morning, everything had cleared up. I opened the door, and there's about 300 people standing there. <laughs> just look, not like clapping, and just looking. And here's this goofy, you know, blonde. I had much blonder hair then. It's gray now, I know. But um, they're just sitting there. And I, of course, we'd had Arabic language, so I knew a little bit of Arabic. And so, I, you know, I, like I did you, I said, and then here comes the smiles and the claps. And, um, you know, I was greeted into the village, and it was just a, a wonderful experience. So I taught mostly seventh graders because seventh grade was the first year that Yemeni boys um, started learning English. And I told the headmaster that it would be best if I got them new so they could hear a native English speaker. And then as they moved along with their education, they would have a strong grounding in hearing what English sounds like, as opposed to having, say, a junior or a senior in high school who most were taught by you know, Egyptians or Syrians, who were very good, by the way, but they heard it through a Syrian, di uh, like a uh, Syrian um, uh, accent. Thank you. Um, and so the ex experience was amazing. I had anywhere between 60 and 100 kids in a class, if you can imagine. Um, it was resource deficient, so they had places to sit down, but they didn't have desks, so they would write on their knee. And most of them, as I mentioned, they were farmers' kids, so they didn't have any money. You know, they, there wasn't a lot of money in the area. And as I mentioned also, many of them would walk as far as five miles away to get to school. They were very, very determined to get their education. And so once they got there, they were very good students, most of them, right? Um, you have 100 kids, you're going to have a few that, that aren't too interested. But um, so I was there for two years. And what was really great about this experience is not only did I, um, did I learn and understand about Yemenis and Yemeni culture and food and all of those things, but all of the teachers that taught in my school were, were from all over the Arab world, as far away as Tunisia, Syria, Jordan, um, Palestine, Somalia. And so they would invite me to their house, and I would learn about Somali, Somali food and Somali culture. And so I was able to kind of learn all about the Middle East. And keep in mind, I'd never traveled outside of America before. And so I learned so much. I became so kind of connected with the teachers at my school, with the Yemenis that invited me in my home. And so what I'd like to end here is to tell you a little bit about how this experience really impacted me today. I was never really interested in the Middle East. It wasn't really, I mean, it's something that I read about, and in that case, I'd be interested. But when I came back, I had so much more connection with that region. 
And so um, over time, I decided I wanted to, to kind of do something with that. I ended up getting a master's in history, and I focused in on um, Middle Eastern studies. In particular, I studied Yemeni migration. So I took this experience that was completely, you know, something I'd never planned, and I was able to use that as a focus for my life. And I would not be standing here with you today if it wasn't for that experience. Right? I, of course, I would be a teacher somewhere, probably back in Kansas City. But here I was with a master's degree, now teaching history, uh, running the tutoring center. And um, you know, the one thing that I love about Moraine Valley is that it's almost like I returned to Yemen in some ways because there's so many people from the Arab world that I now can continue that connection. And I feel so comfortable in that setting. And that's largely because of the experience that I had in Yemen. So I just want to thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kip, for sharing your experiences with us. Thank you. Uh, we will prepare to take your questions, um, but I want to mention a couple, well, one quick thing. Uh, with the celebration of International Education Week, we are t also taking this opportunity to raise funds um, for scholarships that goes toward our international students. So we are selling a cookbook um, with a lot of different um, varying uh, recipes in it, and we are selling that for $5, so we have a number of cookbooks here. Uh, so please feel free at the conclusion to purchase a cookbook, uh, and the funds will be going towards scholarships to support our international students. And maybe, you know, for, for Thanksgiving, if you're celebrating, you can bring a completely different dish to Thanksgiving dinner, right? Not just turkey and dressing. You can bring something a little different. So please feel free to buy um, a cookbook. Okay, so let's open the floor for, for questions. They, we've heard from three wonderful instructors uh, with varying experiences uh, working overseas, and so I'm sure we have some questions uh, for them about their experience um, their, and how it's impacted them and um, you know how they were led to do what they did, as I'm kind of throwing out some hints here. Um, so will any questions? Don't be shy. Right. <laughs> Okay, so I have a question. Um, I believe one of our instructors mentioned it, but I'm not sure if all three did. What led you to, um, you know, working overseas, teaching over, and specifically um, for those who taught? Um, how did you come to the conclusion that, because there are many different things to do um, in working overseas. So one, what led you to working overseas, and two, specifically for those who taught, um, how did you choose that? I can answer that question. President Kennedy started the Peace Corps, and I heard his original speech. I must have been like, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, and it stuck in my brain and said, I want to do that someday. And my last year of working toward my bachelor's of elementary education, I went around a corner at Chicago State, and there was a, a poster for the Peace Corps. So I said, I want to do that. And I went in and talked to the professor about it, and she gave me the application, and I applied. And I, too, worked in... Uh, factories, and I was making brake drums for mobile homes over the winter break, and then I got a phone call from someone in Washington, D.C. that said, do you think you could live on an island that you could walk around in 15 minutes? And I said, it, remember, this was Chicago. It was probably about 10 below zero. And I said, yes, I think I could do that. <laughs> and they originally had me signed up for Africa, Togo, but my two years of high school French wasn't good enough. So instead, they sent me to Palau, a language I had never even heard of, and they gave me the same thing. We got language and a little bit of culture. And then a guy picked me up in a speedboat and brought me around to an island and dropped me off there. And that's where I lived for two years. So the, the whole thing was really set off by President Kennedy's speech about the Peace Corps and having people go overseas. Check, check. Hello, okay. Um, so I have to admit that teaching was not my first option. In fact, students drive me crazy. Uh, people in general drive me crazy. And um, so when I went to Mexico, you know, that's when it really hit me that maybe I am meant to be a teacher when I observed that one ESL class at the language school. And um, the reason why it really hit me is because 
I did like the fact that the teacher sort of had power uh, over students and, and knowledge over students. And so I like that aspect of uh, teaching a little bit. But what, what I really liked was, you know, when, when students actually learned something, like when they actually learned how to uh, say a few words in a new language. And, and that, that really hit me because I'm also a second language, sp second language speaker, and but I never really had that formal uh, ESL education. And so in the actual setting, at in Mexico in the language program, I I really enjoyed seeing how the teacher and the student and the student student interacted to actually learn uh, a new language, and so that really inspired me to maybe consider going to teaching. Uh, I told myself that I am not meant to be a teacher. I cannot teach. Um, I have no knowledge of anything, and uh, and I don't have any patience for students. Um, but that really changed after I took my first linguistics course and, and just the idea of how language works and how language should be taught. And so that really pushed me to maybe, maybe I can uh, be a teacher. Maybe I do have that appearance of being a teacher and maybe I do have that passion uh, to be a teacher. And so, so it took that one, one, one year gap to really consider, you know, because you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do after high school. I was one of those students where, I don't know, work at McDonald's, I don't know, I don't know. Okay, so, but going to Mexico, you know, I think it really opened up uh, an avenue for me to consider uh, teaching. And I did. Um, I kind of approached this a little bit differently because I did talk a little bit, does everybody hear me okay? Um, I did talk a little bit about um, just by accident how I ended up in Yemen. But one thing I would like to share with you is um, how unbelievably beautiful Yemen is. And we all know right now that Yemen is in the midst of a civil war. And a lot of it, um, especially some of the cities, have been destroyed, which is absolutely horrendous. But the antiquity, the beautiful um, architecture that exists, especially in the old city of Sana'a, it's a country that very few people know very much about, but should know something about. The people there, um, up until 1972, by and large, Yemen stayed almost completely shut in because of the government that they had. Starting in 1972, they opened up to the world. And so when I was there 18 years later, it still maintained this unbelievable cultural integrity. Um, the, the people were uh, as genuine as you would find anywhere in the world and as welcoming. And I see, I see the Yemenis, that, the Yemeni Americans that walk in the halls now I see that from them as much as I, as I saw it when I was in Yemen. And um, you know, what, I, what I'd like to share with you is that you know, there's a lot of places in the world that don't get very much coverage that should. And uh, with what's going on in Yemen politically, that everybody should know about what's going on in Yemen and everybody should be appalled at what is happening to uh, uh, Yemen that by and large had kept to themselves for most of their, their history. And so um, I just wanted to, to share with you kind of what influence the country had on me um, kind of going forward. And I, you know, the two years that I spent there by and large had, had a large influence on what I do. And I still have lots of connections with Yemeni Americans here in Dearborn and other places that I worked with um, doing my masters. And you know, I just wanted to kind of share that story because not that many people know about Yemen and we should. Thank you. Great, thank you. Any other questions? Yes. You can, yes. What's your question? Okay, so the question was, what is the best way to improve your English? He's an English learner. Uh, he's my student. <laughs> 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 and um, I told my students, don't ask me hard questions. Um, uh, but that's actually a really good question, and um, again, as a second language learner myself, what I did was I, ha I had to integrate myself into the culture. Um, I, had to, I had to go out there and not be afraid to use the language in public places. Uh, when my family and I, we moved, uh, you know, our English wasn't that strong, and so to make it better, we had to really um, be brave and, and use English as much as possible. So we would try to speak English in the home. Um, in terms of writing, um, just take my class. 
Now, um, for writing, special. Now, I have, to, I have to admit, I was a terrible writer uh, in the second language. I was terrible. I mean, if you s if you saw my papers back then, you would cry too. Okay. But um, what I did was that I had to take extra time to really think about grammar. I had to think about the vocabulary. And to do that, I actually read a lot of news, a lot of newspapers at that time. And yes, I did read some books. And I didn't read just to comprehend, but I read just to look at the sentence structures to see you know, how, how, did, that, how did that writer write that? And, and if I translate it into my other language, you know. Is there a comparison? I mean, does it does it make sense? And so I did a lot of reading uh, to really help me improve. Um, there were many nights of crying and frustration because I just couldn't get it. But um, I did see tutors a lot. But on my own time, I did work really hard to uh, try just to improve little by little. You know, sentence and then make a bigger sentence and then maybe one day a, a paragraph. So it does take time, but just take my class and uh, you'll improve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is no excuse. <laughs> no excuse. <laughs> Great question. Any other questions? Yes. I'll start this one. I would not change that experience for anything. And I, I traveled to, I've been to many different countries in the world. I, I find some unbelievably fascinating. Like India was one of the favorite, my favorite countries that I've been to. Um, and I think that by and large, Yemen was such a surprise for me because I didn't, I knew so little. It's kind of like when you, like your parents or somebody you know take you to someplace that you don't know anything about and it's just unbelievably like uh, unusual, right? That's kind of what my experience with Yemen. So if I were to do it again, I would go to Yemen again, um, just because the experience was so rich. I will ask you about the things. I'm going to use whatever we have in the writing advice <laughs> <laughs> to argue with you. If you have this experience with a, a Middle East country, a country, and you hear in the media all the time the Middle Eastern people or the mm. countries, they are terrorism and they are so much uh, have um, bad countries or the people, they are treating the people different ways than the whatever we mm. saw in the media. Mm. So are you agree with that? Or are you going to be a defend us? You, pro you probably know the answer to that one, right? I uh, know, I right. know, but I tried to think. <laughs> right. No, it's a, it's a really, really good question. And I think that the answer lies, and you guys all know this, especially those that were born someplace else and are here, that you live your experience through connection. And the more connection that you have with people from all over, the better you're, be you're able to parse out the good from the bad. And if you do not have that connection, or you live in a world where people are telling you that certain people are bad simply because where they come from, then you're obviously not connecting with those people, right? And so, you know, now when, when I hear words or I see the media like that, it brings me back to sitting on the floor with my Yemeni friends, eating dinner, right, eating Yemeni food, side by side with people that are gracious enough to invite me into their home almost every day. So it's easy for me to make that, say yes, there, there are bad people in all cultures. You're going to get, I mean, you know, God knows, just watch, watch the nightly news in Chicago and see you know, the bad things that, that people do here, right? So there are bad people everywhere. So it's not specific to any culture. It's not specific to any faith or any religion. It exists everywhere. I mean, the, you know, you think of like what happened in Spain in the 15th century, right? When they were the Christians were torturing people, right? So it's not, it's not specific to any faith. Um, and so, you know, my biggest suggestion on that is connect with people 
that if you hear something bad about a group of people, more than likely it's a false statement. And the more connection that you can have with people, the more um, you know contact that you can have. And you know I've learned the language and and culture and, and all of those things. And so that brings us together. And I think that you know we all can be work harder at that. And that's one thing. Maybe that's one of the best lessons that I was coming from an almost all white um, suburban place in, in, in the United States, that may be the best lesson that I learned is that contact really is the bridge between people. Thank you. Thank you. Great questions. Let me put a little historical context into that too. They say that the United States is a nation of immigrants and immigrants come in waves, waves crash on the beach, it hurts. And there's a period of adjustment. There's a period of acceptance. The people that were here before are often a little bit fearful of people who are kind of new to the country. And they have misconceptions. And they have wrong ideas. And eventually, hope they will come around. But again, like Kip said, it's connection. You connect with people. You show them that we're human beings, too. We have our own cultures and cultural values. And yes, our religion is different. And it, it's not the first time people of a different religion came and the minor majority group didn't accept them. Catholics came and they were not accepted. Okay, Irish came, no Irish need apply. It happens to every group that comes and there's a period of adjustment and it takes time. And it, it's not fun, it's not pretty, but eventually people get through it. But like Kip said, you need to make connection with people. And they see you as a neighbor, they see you as a friend, they see you as a classmate and, and then acceptance occurs and they in turn will talk to other people if people are saying negative things they'll say wait a minute I know people that are absolutely not like that very good thank you any other questions yes hi yes yeah she's uh, my student yeah <laughs> You will let your son or daughter, when they grow up, the, to take the chance, the same you uh, grab the class, the, uh, the school, high school, uh, and yeah. go to take uh, experience like what you did? You know, um, Rasmi, that's a very good question. And I've been thinking about that uh, for a long time, actually, because the world has changed mm -hmm. and um, changed a lot. And, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not, too worried or paranoid, but my wife is, and she's worried that you know leaving the United States uh, could be very dangerous uh, for Americans. And uh, if my son or daughter did want to travel after high school, uh, first I'd say no because college is first. But <laughs> um, but if if they did, um, I would probably support them because I want them to be uh, I want them to know different cultures other than just what they're in Chicago. Um, I want them to experience international life a little bit, although they do have some experience because we do travel to Thailand to visit my wife's family. But on their own, I think it's a good experience for them because you know I did okay, and I think if I raise my ch children to know cultures, to understand um, that people are good, okay, not all bad, that I think they will, <coughs> uh, they'll do okay. And if I support them in that way, um, I think I'll feel much better, and I think my wife will feel much better too. Um, but sometimes you just have to consider, you know, what are the political issues going on um, in certain countries. And uh, for example, like Mexico, um, a lot of immigration going on and there are a lot of negative outlook on uh, Hispanics in general. Um, but but I, that would not really stop me. F that would not, I would not let my son be stopped because of that because um, they, do, they do need to experience something, life outside the United States. And um, and I would you know maybe travel with them or um, uh, just make sure they're safe. Um, but yeah, I, I would definitely let them do that. Yeah, with a lot of precaution. <laughs> Thank you. Great questions. Great responses as well. Any other questions? Yes. Question in the back. When you came back to the United States after your experience, was that kind of difficult too? I mean, it was almost like you're now coming to a new culture in the sense that you at one time were a part of, but I'm just interested in that perspective. 
Um, I can definitely answer that. Actually, I did a, if you're interested, I did a whole 15 minute video um, for, uh, at the, uh, in the library about this very thing. And, I, and what I uh, stress is that the, the experience of coming back was a bigger culture shock than actually going to Yemen. And largely it's because my world when I left was so small. And then having this experience, I traveled like completely around the world. When I came back, no one in my town could identify with the experience that I had. And so there was a, almost a feeling of loneliness when I came back, uh, more so uh, kind of a culture shock than when I went to Yemen. And it took me a while. In fact, I didn't really work or do anything for several months after I got back because of the challenges that, that's faced by that experience. But um, you know, looking back on it, um, it was just an adjustment. You know, like a lot of people have to go through adjustments, like people that are moving from a different country to this country, there's um, an adjustment. And so I had that. It, it's, it's weird going, and I, I'm sure that maybe a lot of you have experienced the same thing. If you've lived in the United States for a few years and you go back to your country, all of a sudden you're the American. You're no longer one of us anymore. And I'm sure that a lot of you have kind of experienced that, or you'll go you'll go to a shop in your country dressed more like an American and they want to charge you more, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's all of these challenges that are borne out after you've had an experience like that. So thanks for asking, Karen. Yeah, I just want to say a couple of things. Um, you know, yes, you can get culture shock coming from a country back to your own country. Uh, this happened to me when I went to Thailand and back to the United States. And uh, the culture was so different in Thailand. Uh, people there are so respect, uh, they, they show a lot of respect. Um, they're so kind to other people. They have, <coughs> they have a way to, uh, um, to welcome people into their country. So Thailand is very, it's just a, a country where people love each other and they really care about each other. When I, when I went back to the United States, uh, it was completely different. Is that people are always in a hurry uh, people are always angry when they respond, and like, like, no, where, where's the respect? Like, where's, where's the calmness in, in your voice? This is America. We don't have that, and and so like, it was just huge difference, and and that was definitely a good, a, a big culture shock for me. Even though I've been in the United States for a while, like I've accustomed to the culture, but when I left for you know a couple months in Thailand and came back, very, very different. Great, thank you, thank you. Uh, any other questions? We have time for maybe one or two questions, one or two, okay. Uh, well, I have a question. What was one of the biggest adjustments you made when you, um, you know, left your home country and went to um, your, your host country or your new country as an expatriate? Weather, weather. I, r I went to Palau in July. It was summer. Okay, everything's good. And then my biological clock told me in December that it's time to get cool. And so it was really difficult to adjust to the weather. And Palau is very, very humid. It's surrounded by what they call rock islands. Or they used to be, um, well, they're subsumed um, coral reefs. And they look like Christmas trees. And they just encircle everywhere. And, and so they hold the humidity and very, very hot. But Michael, the fishing. Oh my God, the fishing. I caught so many fish there. Spear fishing and line fishing. Oh, it was really fun. So that was not a difficult adjustment because I'd learned how to fish since I was like two or three years old. So that was great, but the weather was hard to get used to. Um, I would say for me, there were two things. Um, and those from the Arab world will, um, you'll recognize the first one and that's time. In Yemen, time was irrelevant. In fact, you would get uh, like in a taxi cab and if they were wearing watches, nobody had the exact time, right? It was always like 10 minutes off, 15 minutes off, it didn't matter. And so, um, you know, and of course that whole inshallah, right? You guys heard that, like you wanna do something inshallah, right? So I heard that and there was always like a true inshallah and then kind of a, you know, vague inshallah, which means like God willing for those people that don't speak Arabic. The other thing that was probably the hardest adjustment for me was um, being alone. 
And when you're in the Peace Corps, especially since I was the only Westerner in a village, I spent a lot of time alone. And so what you do, and you guys probably had this kind of same experience, you become very comfortable with self to a point where I can now, and I've always been like this, like since I've been back, I can go to a restaurant and sit by myself at a restaurant and not feel um, lonely or whatever because that experience taught me to be comfortable with myself. And so that's the that's the probably the biggest adjustment, but it was a it's a very good experience. Yeah. How about time? They, the the islands where I was at um, were part of Micronesia, and they had a, a saying Micronesian time. Mm -hmm. And what's Micronesian time? Well, it's anywhere from two minutes to two days late, and it's still acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, thank you again. Um, I do see another hand up in the audience. Okay, he's bringing the mic to you. <laughs> Mike has the mic. I just have one question for Mr. Josh. Kip. Kip, 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 okay. Uh, what was the best meal for you? You, you tried it in Yemen. In Yemen? Yeah. Well, um, my favorite, are you from Yemen? Yeah. Okay, my favorite is shafut, and yeah. shafut is made with uh, yogurt and garlic that they have a special kind of bread that they actually share with Ethiopia. Um, it's called, remind me what the name of it, it's called, um, in, it's in Ethiopia, it's called injera, and in, um, yeah, it's a spongy bread that's kind of sour. It's, it's yeah, it's called laha. Lahu, yeah, lahu. Yeah. Um, that was my favorite, but I, I really enjoyed Yemeni food because it's very different. It's much different than Jordanian or Palestinian food. They have their own kind of culture, um, um, which is very different, and it's shared a lot with like the Red Sea. You know, you see a lot of, and also from uh, the Ottoman Empire. So I know that selta, which is their national dish, which is like a stew, it, it kind of has some of its origin in the Ottoman Empire, I, I, from doing my research. So yeah, so that's that's the answer to that question. Thank you. Sure. Great, thank you so much, thank you. Uh, well, on behalf of the Intensive English Language Program and the International Student Affairs Office, um, I'm again, Ever Ivy, and I'd like to thank you for allowing the Job Resource Center to be a part of moderating this wonderful um, panel discussion in celebration of International Education Week. Uh, and don't forget, we do have uh, cookbooks for sale. Thank you, everyone, for attending.